add passion and stir is the podcast from Share Our Strength. I'm Billy Shore. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly conversation about food, about passion, about people who are making a difference in the world. And we are at the Music Hall Loft in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, with uh, some really special guests. I'm going to introduce them in a moment, but we also have some special guests in our in our first live audience, and there, some of them, I can't see them all, but I'm going to ask them to raise their hands from our Share Our Strengths Portsmouth Taste of the Nation Committee, which for, uh, I'm going to say, maybe 25 years, has been raising money year after year after year to fund anti-hunger programs in this community, and they've just done an unbelievable job. So it's great to have you here, and it's great to just... Uh, honor your work. And although Chris did it, I also want to thank Jeff Johnston, my friend who uh, is on the board of the Music Hall and suggested that we come here. And uh, this is really a a, a treat uh, and a thrill for us. Our guests here today, uh, Senator Jeannie Shaheen uh, from New Hampshire in her second term. uh, When I'm thinking, Jeannie, when we met, you were, I think, a mom at home with two or three kids, had not been in elective office, two kids, yes. um, and uh, we started talking about the Gary Hart campaign, and you seemed to have the best ideas in the state on how he could win the primary in 1984, and he did. Um, so thank you for that. Well, thank you. There, you and a lot of other people were involved. So there were a lot of people involved in that. Also here, Evan Mallett from the Black Trumpet, really uh, renowned chef in this region and all over the community. Thank you so much, Chef, for being here. Uh, and Kate Callahan from the Dundero School, who has, and Kate has been an yes. advocate and a champion for our work. Kate, you have a lens on this that's a, a little bit different and a little bit closer to those who are probably most vulnerable developmentally in terms of the young children at the school at which you're a principal, the Dondero School. Talk a little bit about what some of those needs are that you've seen when it comes to food and young kids. Sure. So um, being in Portsmouth was actually a surprise for me when I realized that 24% of our students at Dondera, which is one of three elementary schools, uh, receive free and reduced lunch. And so all of a sudden it put a different shift on how a student starts their day prior to entering our building. And so at school, as a community, we have really put emphasis on um, providing food for students, not just through the school meals, but also through opportunities with snacks in the classroom, helping them understand how to prepare a healthy snack for themselves at home where their parent may not be able to do that. Um, we've also looked at how food has a negative and or positive impact on student behavior. And so having those conversations as to what that may be or may not be um, is a big part of what we do every day. And then we also partner with people like Evan. Um, we have an amazing woman who we call Garden Kate who <laughs> comes in and helps our school gardens grow. So we start that in right now. We're starting that in our classrooms so that we can put it outside to then come back in with the intent that it would become part of our salad bar. So it's this ongoing cycle that really has become a part of what we do beyond the academics. Uh, Senator Shaheen, I'd love your political advice on exactly what 
Kate is talking about because, as you know, not everybody uh, is aware of this, but the school meals programs in particular, the school lunch and the school breakfast program, they, they came about as the result of generals and admirals after World War II in 1946 coming to Congress saying our troops by the end of the war were not strong enough to fight. They, weren't, they didn't have the nutrition and weren't as fit as they should be. And so they created the school lunch program and after that the school breakfast program. And they tended to have a lot of bipartisan support. But one of the things that we've been trying to do at Share Our Strength is help people understand the broader connections between uh, that this is not just an issue of feeding hungry kids, that this relates to our nation's health care costs. This relates to our nation's educational achievement. Um, we were just last week with former Governor Terry McAuliffe, who had, in Virginia, Governor of Virginia, had been a big champion of this. And he was saying that his entire governorship was focused around economic development and workforce development and attracting businesses to Virginia based on the promise that we're going to invest in our kids so that you've got a qualified workforce here and that that starts with feeding kids. I'd love your sense of politically how we can most effectively frame these arguments so that you're so that they resonate with your colleagues. I think it's important to point out that just yesterday the state senate in New Hampshire passed uh, legislation that would provide breakfast for all children in New Hampshire, which is great. Um, you know, it's, it still has to pass the House, but um, there, there's good reason to believe that it's going to pass and that that's very important. And it's an indication that we understand how important nutrition and for kids especially. You know, we know kids can't learn. You've seen that as principal. Kids can't learn if they're hungry and making sure that they get fed. If you look at, you know, what are the, the indicators of healthy children, good nutrition is one of those. And actually, when we passed the Farm Bill in Congress, despite a lot of debate early on, the Farm Bill passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. And one of the biggest costs in the Farm Bill is the SNAP program, which is the biggest public food program. It feeds 42 million people in this country. And there was people came together around that, a recognition that we've got to make sure that people have the nutrition they need because you can't do anything else if, if you're worried about where your next meal is going to come from. It's just, it's that basic, Kate. So those families who are um, food insecure, they also, most of them are coming from a low socioeconomic background, um, as well as a, a very limited education. And so over the years, we kept saying at, in Portsmouth, how come people aren't coming in and filling out their free and reduced forms? And so these forms are literally 10 pages. And so what I proposed was, why don't we set up Chromebooks and go to the housing authority go to the homeless shelter, go to some of the apartment buildings that these kids are coming from and sit with the families and start helping them insert that form. So once that went online, it really shifted our program in Portsmouth so that many kids were coming in um, wanting to have breakfast and being able to have breakfast rather than saying, you know, we didn't get it, but I can't afford it, and maybe I'll have, you know, saltine crackers that my neighbor gives me. Um, so that really has been helpful as we've identified those students in need. And I think the other big piece that I'm personally passionate about is there's many families who are at school who don't meet those guidelines for free and reduced lunch, and so they're just above. And so those are the kids that I worry about because unless you know their personal story, you have no idea what they're coming to school with or without. Um, mm. So that's really become something that 
I've tried to put more emphasis on, and I feel that through the holidays, it's easy to open up those conversations around, you know, a charity or a nonprofit or a bank wants to support a family in need. And so all of a sudden it became, it's not just that they need Christmas gifts, it's can you pay my lunch bill for the best of the school year? And so that really has shifted our thinking at school to help us you know, put an extra $5 in for somebody's pocket, even though they may not qualify. And so I think we have to also find that balance of that next tier up. Jeannie, when I think about our relationship and how many forms it's taken in terms of your work in the heart campaign and then your work as a, a senator and a champion, and, you know, one of the things that was so special about the heart campaign and is it, it led directly to the creation of Share Our Strength because when it ended in 1984, we had these organizing skills and community and field operation skills, and uh, we decided how could we put that to a different use, and it turned out to be through Share Our Strength and this anti-hunger work that's now lasted uh, for 35 years. And I've got a number of things that I'd, I'd like to ask you about in an issue sense, and they have everything to do with the president's declaration of an emergency and the threat that that poses to funding for, you know, just here in the Naval Yard in Portsmouth. Some I of thought your... this was about food. Well, it's going to be. It's going to be. It is. We've already had our conversation about food because I'm in the process of trying to make some restaurant reservations for you for, for the That's weekend. Right, for um, and I, I, I'm also interested in your work on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Politico had an article about you this week as the only woman on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee yes. and how some of your work has has some of your work has raised such an important level of attention to issues of global health for women, issues of education for young girls around the world. But the first thing I want to ask you, because I feel like it relates to everything else, is as somebody in the Senate who is known for bringing um, civility and sophistication to the discussion of public affairs, how do we get back what it feels like we have lost. You, you probably live this in a way more than any of the rest of us do, this kind of breakdown in communications and this hyper-partisanship and polarization. How do you think we get back to a place where our institutions function the way they're supposed to? Um, well, first, let me say what an important job Share Our Strength does in feeding people throughout this country. And congratulations to the local folks here in Portsmouth who have raised, I think, over $2 million in the time that you've been um, working. And Taste of the Nation, which is uh, a wonderful event. You know, I, I was thinking about this as I was in actually in the Foreign Relations Committee this week because we had a couple of issues that we've been dealing with that have to do with the challenges when people don't have access to adequate food. We were talking about Venezuela and the tragedy in Venezuela, which is a rich country that was doing very well. And now under dictator Maduro, we have people who are literally starving. And they were talking about the average person has lost 24 pounds in Venezuela since Maduro became dictator and trying to provide humanitarian assistance to them. And it's so basic to everything else that we do. And so thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. And to get back to the civil discourse conversation, it's very disappointing to me what's happened in this country, and I think it's about leadership um, one of the things that I think all of us can do is to model 
civil discourse and respect for others, for people we don't agree with necessarily. You know, we have to be able to listen to each other and to figure out how we can compromise and work together. We've got to do that. That's what's in the best interest of this country. And everywhere I go in New Hampshire, probably the number one concern that people raise with me is they say, you know, why can't you all get together in Washington and work together to do what's best for the country? And we've got to get back to that. And we've got to make sure that our leaders are as good as our people in this country. Uh, I want to uh, take the opportunity now, Evan and Kate, to go back a little bit because one of the things our listeners always want to understand is how people uh, who were at the level of accomplishment that you're at got to where they were. Um, Evan, were you always setting out to be a chef? Was that in the cards for you from the beginning? No, but there was a topic that I wanted to jump on real quick because it's a big deal in the restaurant industry. And that is addiction of all kinds, um, opioid and otherwise. And um, we have an event coming up on Monday that, and most of the good ideas that I get uh, come from farmers. I steal them from all my farmer friends. Um, (laughs) And this was a farmer friend of mine who said, we have a situation in our community where our restaurants and our farms are struggling to find employees. We have like the lowest unemployment rate um, of any of the industries. So we uh, are kind of desperate for skilled labor and even at this point unskilled labor that we can train. And we have a surplus of people who are looking for work but can't get it because they have a background um, that isn't that people don't trust. Mm-hmm. So um, we created a job fair and it's happening at 3S on Monday. And the idea is to try to introduce restaurants and farmers to candidates who need a second chance and to hopefully restore their dignity through employment. Fantastic. Will that be a a one-time thing or something you do over and over again? I'm guessing it's going to be so wildly successful that it's going to be a multi-time thing. Um, But right now it's a one-time thing, and we'll see how it goes. Good, good. Um, But to answer your your previous question, not to hog the mics to jump in any time, but the uh, idea of cooking to me came... Uh, through the front door of the restaurant, and I was struggling through multiple colleges and uh, had lots of restaurant jobs and got seduced into the kitchen by a chef when I was a valet in a restaurant in Washington, D.C. Which uh, restaurant were you at in Washington? It was called the River Club. It hasn't been Mm -hmm. around for It was part Mm -hmm. of a restaurant group that did everything against everything I stand for today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So maybe that was the... Initiative, you know, the initial um, impetus for my re- later reaction as a chef, and uh, what I think is is a pretty logical. Well, just give us something juicy. What was what so. was one of the things? What was one of the things they did that was? Uh, I spilled uh, I spilled soup on Linda Carter, like really close to her cleavage, so I couldn't stop staring and didn't know what to touch. So I ended up backing away from the table. Um, so that's how I got my kitchen job. Okay. <laughs> This kitchen was, you know, very uh, the epitome of the 80s excess. This is the late 80s, and uh, Mm. the food was really small. The price tag was really big. Lots of people doing lots of uh, uh, bad things in the restroom, usually. Um, And one of my jobs was to clean that up at the end of the night. Uh, (laughs) Then I stopped uh, working in restaurants because I had this delusion that I was going to be a writer. And this went on for quite some time. (laughs) 
And I wrote about food. I ended up getting back into food through writing about it and uh, moved up to Portsmouth in 1998, ate a meal in the restaurant that I now own, and at the time it was called Lindbergh's Crossing. But it must be said that it was also for 26 years one of the most iconic American restaurants of all time, Hmm. Blue Strawberry. Blue Strawberry, of course. So that's the legacy that I now still get chills when I say out loud. Um, And every day I walk in the door of my restaurant, I feel that history, which is pretty remarkable. And I'm very fortunate that I have that as an infrastructure in which to, you know, create my mad experiments. Okay, fabulous. We're going to come back and talk about um, what some of those experiences in the restaurant are now today, particularly, you know, the food experiences. But, Mm -hmm. Kate, um, I want to talk to you about how you got to – how do you end up being – principal of a school. So I grew up with parents in education and never wanted to be an educator. Um, So I'm here and um, went down to College Park in Maryland and thought I was going to go into become a speech communication disorder major. And so I worked at the Children's Hospital in Bethesda and all the doctors sent their kids to this thing called Montessori schools. And I was like, I thought that was religion based. And so then I went and um, fell in love and said, I'm not going to do this by a number anymore in a hospital where kids were numbers coming in and it was all about billing to get their speech delivery done. And uh, went and got my Montessori training and taught in private Montessori schools and then ended up at a charter school in Haverhill, Massachusetts, and uh, which was led by an engineer and was very linear. And so I applied to Portsmouth out of spite, never had any experience in the public education, and nine <laughs> years later, here I am. There you are. Um, and when you were talking... Uh, a few moments ago about 24% of the kids being um, uh, on pre or reduced price, meaning that they're at or near the poverty line. Uh, and you said, you said something that I thought was really important, and I'd love you to say a little bit more about it. You said you really have to understand their personal stories mm-hmm. to understand what's going on. And most of us don't have access to those stories. So what can you tell us? You don't have to use names, obviously, but tell us a little bit about like what is it, what's the life experience of a child who's in that situation? Sure. So um, at Dondero, I don't know how many people know where we're located, but we're off of a Route 1 corridor. So there's a few neighborhoods, and the majority of students who come live in apartment buildings or at the homeless shelter or through um, housing. And so housing has become a little bit more transient because of the opioid crisis. And so there has been a, a little bit more of in and out, um, as well as people coming in and out of the shelter. And so there are those students who it's very obvious when they come from a homeless shelter and or housing, um, some of those situations of either no job, um, no family structure, um, a lot of maybe neglect and abuse that have happened at home. And then there's another tier where it might be a single mom and or a single dad or two people working with multiple children thinking that a $1,500 rent at an apartment is great for a family of four. And then you get to Portsmouth and you realize that it doesn't include your water bill, your sewer bill, your cable, um, as well as everything else that Portsmouth has to offer. And those bills then become excessive. And so what happens is those students really keep that story hidden. And so in addition to me overseeing, obviously, a staff and students, I think one of my greatest gifts is engaging with those littles and having them tell their stories about what they need. And through that really becomes the unknown piece of what they're going home to, either food, if mom and dad will be there, um, if there's been a crisis over the past week, and is that going to continue, is there going to be abuse? And so through those conversations, I usually can get a parent to somewhat tell me what's happening, um, and I try to partner with them. And so that might give, be giving them a ride to school. That might be helping a mom 
um, connect with another agency like Gather so that even though she doesn't have a car, we're driving her to Gather so that she can fill out the application that's needed so she has a data shop um, and then helping the students create a list at school on some of those foods that they might want to eat rather than just relying on their mother. So a lot of what we're trying to do is come back to the littles and helping to empower them to have a voice but also give them some systems so that hopefully we can break that cycle and that they will be able to be independent and make some choices that will get them um, out of the situation that they're in. Mm-hmm. And how many kids at all uh, uh, in total at Dondera? Uh, 311 as of today. 311, and so almost a quarter of them uh, in this mm-hmm. uh, situation that you're, you're describing in terms of free and reduced price. Jeannie, you and I have been in democratic politics for a long time, you more than me. And so it, it's tempting, I think, almost reflexively to say most of the problem is with the other side. But as I've been less involved in politics, I, I see a lot of times the problem is on both sides, at least in terms of the constant political jockeying. Is that a, is that a fair thing to say to a Democratic senator? Well, I think the important thing to say is that if we're going to address these issues in this country, then we've all got to take some responsibility for it and figure out how each of us can do a better job in our own lives of saying to people, let's, let's figure out how we can talk and find some common ground. Because for most of us Americans, we have more in common that, than we have that divides us. And we need to focus on that. And part of the challenge here under this president is that he has, his approach has been very divisive. And I think we need leadership that brings people together. Uh, speaking of which, didn't you recently announce that you're running for a third term in terms of leadership I that's did. important for this country? <laughs> so congratulations. So, so everybody out there, help me with this, yes. right? Uh, Evan, talk to us about... Um, the restaurant, which you and I were just talking backstage, I haven't been to yet. Um, you very generously um, suggested that we try to find a time to come soon, and I can't wait. Um, what's the experience that most people have when they uh, when they come and enjoy the evening and they leave? What What are you trying to uh, foster in them in terms of what they feel when they leave? What should their What would their night have been like? We shoot for the descriptor orgasmic. We don't always get that, but. <laughs> So our menu is, it's been described as inscrutable or, uh, you know, like a a Rosetta Stone of some kind. Um, And that is because I'm a complete geek and I want to do the research myself to understand the food better that I'm putting in front of people. And that can be an obsession about the food's origin, how it got literally from where it was first created to the final plate, and telling that story is a big part of what Black Trumpet has always been about. So that's heady stuff for people who just want to go eat a steak. And I, I get that, um, but we also try to over-educate our staff to be able to answer questions because now we live in a culture, and anyone in the restaurant business here can moan with me, uh, but it's a reality that a vast majority of people now have intolerances or allergies or issues so that education has actually become one of our strengths, not for the reasons I wanted it to be, uh, but because we can answer intelligently, you know, does this food contain this deadly ingredient that um, will kill me right here in my seat? That's a part of that sort of breadth of knowledge that I try to impart, um, not to drum people over the head with, but to 
hope that when someone leaves Black Trumpet, they know something more about our, our food shed, about food's origins, about biodiversity, knowing that there's you know, more than one kind of onion or cabbage or carrot. Like, that's, that's a victory to me. <laughs> And, and uh, for those of us that are, will be lucky enough to uh, come in sometime soon, what's the one thing that we should not miss on the menu? Oh, there, see, I have two children, um, 15 <laughs> and 18 years old. And for all 18 years that I have had offspring, I have said, I can't pick one baby over another. And okay. that's what all of those menu babies, like, those are all family. I can't say, you know, <laughs> one's an ugly redhead. You know? <laughs> Let's talk about food quality and really the food system because that's something you're both involved in again at somewhat different ends of the pipeline kid i know you've been a really strong advocate for it's not just enough to feed kids but what we feed them is important and school systems are not easy to change that way i'm sure you've got some war stories uh to tell about it and i know evan you're involved in some national organizations that are really focused on the food system. So I'd love to hear from both of you. But when, when people talk about the food system, a lot of us don't even really know what that means. When you talk about making our food system better, what should we understand about that? I will say when I first was in education, it was really about just feeding students and making sure they had food. And then over time and understanding um, my husband, who does a lot of sustainability and recognizing origins of seafood and where that comes from and how we get that, and also recognizing the need from a diet standpoint, from child obesity, as well as the trauma and reading more about kids with trauma and how food additives are impacting their ability to attend or not attend. I think when I think about that food structure, it's not just the food that we're putting in front of them. It's where it's coming from, how it's being grown, what we're using to grow it, giving exposure to students. So we do triads at school. So once a month, we introduce a new vegetable. And so it could be something from a turnip to, I don't know, something that's in season. So we did apples, but everyone knows what an apple is, but maybe there's six different types of apples that we're producing. And so we try to partner with local farms. And so there's times when farmers come in and talk about, this is what I grew, this is how we grew it, and now here it is on your plate. And so like you said, shifting the idea from a school system in, into putting food on their, on their tray of a child that isn't packaged, that doesn't have 26 grams of sugar to start the day, that isn't um, tacos to go, which is a bag of nachos with slop, in my opinion, thrown on it. And maybe I'll be fired after this, but that's the reality <laughs> that, um, that we're dealing with. And so it's looking, I think there's looking at the, where it's coming from, we're doing and how it impacts the human body. And I know there's complexities involved in this in the sense that I, I think of Boston Public Schools, which we've spent a lot of time uh, visiting. They have a very old physical infrastructure. So they literally have not had kitchens in Boston Public Schools. Uh, a lot of folks don't know this, but for the, maybe the last 15 years, uh, all of Boston's food came from Long Island, where it was cooked maybe, I don't know, 30, 45, 65 days ago, um, frozen, put on a truck, and it's, you know, it's processed and, and thawed. And so there's an effort now to start building, rehabbing the schools and building kitchens so that you can cook real food. But sometimes that's a complexity that not every community can overcome if they don't have the resources to and do I that. And I think the struggle is, is that I have an amazing chef at school who wants to do all of that, but then you have somebody else who's buying the food. Mm-hmm. And so when those visions don't align, that's where the, the, the fallout is. Um, and so there's times when she'll make amazing chicken um, to roast chickens for the kids and then do mashed potatoes. And so they can see everything's laid out on top of the shelf when they come in so they can see that food. But then there's other days when it's packaged. And so, yes, you want to feed them, but you also, 
I think we need to teach them what they're eating. And when my kids were in elementary school, we did this awesome thing called Farm Day, where um, I was. And it, in retrospect, sounds a lot easier than it really was. Um, but I remember that conversation with the two, shall we call them divergent uh, <laughs> factors, where you have the person buying the food and then the extremely energized people who were making the food and welcomed me into the kitchen. Uh, for one day to come and we basically we kidnapped all of these amazing kids and put them on a bus and took them to a farm where they were able to go out into the fields uh, plant a seed and that was going to be the crop that would be harvested the next year when we went back in the very beginning of the growing season but they also had greenhouses there and the kids were able to take one plant that was a starter plant from the greenhouse and bring it home with them at the end of the day and we were focusing on the three sisters. So it was uh, corn, squash, and beans. And all of those happened to make really great tacos, not the kind that you were just describing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we did a taco uh, lunch that day, and we used all local ingredients to make That's the great. tacos and to see the kids like shaping the tortillas mm, and cooking fantastic. everything in the kitchen. And it was such an um, among the most rewarding experiences I have had as a, as a chef and as a parent, you know, I felt like I was all of those kids' parents for that day. And you get to see them light up and learn and care about the food origins. And I know some percentage of them go back to their parents Mm -hmm. and say, we did the coolest thing. We made tacos. We've got to do that at home. You know, even if it's only like a few. And so on a more, if you think about it on a more systemic, uh, level of, in terms of, fixing our food system? What kind of kind of policy issues do we need to think about? Well, I think, so the lowest hanging literal fruit is food waste, as far as I'm concerned. And it's been a really, it's a buzz term that people are using a lot now. Some of our local organizations used food waste as a, the theme for the last year. Um, schools waste a lot of food. <laughs> Farms waste a lot of food. You know, um, we're talking about 40% of all food that's grown is wasted, and a lot of it starts right on the farm. And for years, I had gone to meet farmers and and their their produce on the farm, um, or livestock in some cases. And and I would see these vast amounts of food on the compost pile, or sometimes just crated up and rotting. All of that food to me, as a chef, was food, and it was not distinguishable from something that was sitting, you know, on the Whole Foods shelf, all shiny and bright. And expensive. Um, so I've spent a lot of time recently in, in thinking through ways that we can bridge the gap between food insecurity and food surplus, because that is an ingredient surplus, that because the food is ugly, damaged, bruised, um, and sometimes just unharvestable by a farm that can't afford to pay people to harvest everything they grow. Um, so there's a lot of economic factors there. There are a lot of issues that make it a very a, a more complicated topic than um, it initially appears. But um, a couple of years ago, I started something, again, with a farmer who had the idea in the first place called Abundance. And we take farm surplus and ugly foods now from a network of farms all over New England, and we make soup out of the ingredients, which uh, we freeze and distribute some to gather and to food banks. And then we're desperately trying to find other channels to sell the product, but we suck at that. Is that something consumers can find, the abundance products? They can. They just have to look really hard. Okay. Um, now, some of us have, the, in a way, kind of the luxury of working on one or two or three issues that we're passionate about. Senator Shaheen, you have to work on 
dozens and dozens of issues, and I know one of them that you've been an outspoken uh, on recently is the opioid uh, crisis and the the as an advocate of our nation's need to confront this and make sure we're dealing with it. Could you just say a little bit about that? Because I know New Hampshire is one of the states that's been hit the hardest. We are. We have uh, the second highest opioid-related overdose death in the country, sadly. Um, We are making some progress on that. We saw that number drop by 8% last year. But one of the Part of the fallout from that is so many kids have been affected. Um, It's in their homes. Their parents have uh, a substance use disorder. They have gone to live with grandparents. They're in the foster care system. And it's affecting this whole second generation. And we've got to get our hands around that, our arms around that, because if we don't, um, those kids are going to be at a loss for, for their futures. So we have done... Um, We have begun to make a dent in Washington. We've put in uh, $6 billion over the last two years to provide resources for communities and states. In New Hampshire, we were able to have a seven-fold increase in the amount of money that's coming back to New Hampshire for state opioid response grants, and that state has used that to set up a treatment system called the hub-and-spoke system, which is still getting off the ground, but it offers an opportunity for people to get treatment. And the sad thing is, well, actually the positive thing is we've begun to change the understanding about substance use disorders, and we're learning that this is a chronic illness it's not a one-time thing. It's something that people have to deal with for the rest of their lives, and we've got to provide recovery supports. We've got to understand that treatment may need to go on a lot longer than 30 days and to recognize that we're not going to jail our way out of this epidemic. We've got to help people get the treatment they need to be successful. Do we know as much as we would like to about the demographics of it? And does it cut across old and young, rich and poor? Is it mostly poverty? Yes, the answer is all of the above. In New Hampshire, it's, it's been old, young, um, rich, poor, Manchester, Berlin, Portsmouth. Right. I, I would bet everybody in this audience knows somebody who has been affected. Um, and so we've got we've to recognize that and treat it that way. There are some states, you know, you have this perception that, well, West Virginia, which has been the hardest hit in the country, it's happening because their economy is in decline and they have challenges, pockets of poverty. But that's not the problem here. There are some places where that exacerbates the issue. But it's a a confluence of different factors, our proximity to um, Massachusetts, where there are some uh, places where there are a lot of drugs that are coming in. It's about overprescribing, which happened. It's be- that's begun to change, but overprescribing for pain medication and people not recognizing what was happening. And I think now we're beginning to understand better what's going on. But we've got to continue to provide the resources at the federal level that we need in New Hampshire and across this country to make sure people get the help they need. Um, Last question for you, because I know you've got to go. Um, Just as citizens, all of us in this room, those of us working with nonprofit organizations, what's the best way that we can be making a difference in in our communities? 
well, first of all, keep volunteering for those nonprofit organizations and um, make contributions. We had somebody from H&R Block come in this week to talk about what's happening because of the tax changes last year. And one of the unfortunate things about the tax bill is that it encouraged people to no longer um, file the long form. And so what they're seeing already is a reduction in contributions to charitable organizations. And that's going to have a real impact. So I would encourage people to continue to contribute to the organization of your choice, continue to volunteer, um, because particularly in New Hampshire, where we have one of the highest volunteer rates in the country, that makes a huge difference in what we can do. And almost less important which issue you're involved in, but that you're involved in the, in the community and engaged that way. Evan Mallett and Kate Callahan, thank you. Thank you so much, Senator. Thank Cheney, you. For being thank with you us. to share our strength and to everything that you all do. Thanks. Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.